I didn't tell you guys about the, the, the first time I had attended uh, Living Truth, maybe the first or second time, uh, there was a gentleman that got up during the service to leave. It was in the old building, and Pastor Michael stopped him and said, hey, where do you think you're going? <laughs> and he said, I've got to get a haircut. And Pastor Michael's like, a haircut? You couldn't have done that any other time? He said, well, when I got here, I didn't need a haircut. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Paul. I'll, I'll, I have some cash. <laughs> I'll pay you afterwards. Anyways. No, you know, today has been, there's been a little bit of a damper, obviously, on, on what's happened. And I think that calls for maybe on our 633 calendar, something to the, to the effect of the problem of pain or the problem of evil or why do, why do things like this happen? How does God allow that? And... Uh, are there good reasons that we can give for that, or at least adequate reasons? Because it, it leaves so many of us with uh, so many lingering questions, especially knowing that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, right, all-good. And when you combine those, the age-old uh, objection is that God can't be all of those at the same time and allow things like to happen. Well, there are good answers for that. So maybe that's... Uh, something we should do is a 6.33 at some point. Well, thank you for those that were here last month that came back. Well, it's about half the size, I think. So maybe uh, we'll, we'll chalk it up to the weather. No, actually, uh, anyways. Um, so as I was getting ready for tonight, uh, this morning, my wife was on her phone and she was listening to some video and um, I'm like, what, what is that that you have going? I was sitting at the kitchen table with my notes, and uh, this is about 7 in the morning. And she goes, she, I, I'm, I'm watching these guys, these motivational speakers. She's already laughing. I'm watching these motivational speakers so she can give me tips and hints. She says, I'm doing it all wrong. I don't move around enough. I don't use my hands enough. I don't do this and that. I don't get down like this. I don't change my inflections enough. I don't use uh, pithy sayings like, uh, let's see if I can remember what she said. I need to use at least once tonight. Whatever goes down in the well comes up in the bucket. Whatever goes down in the well comes up in the bucket. It worked. It worked. It worked. Anyways, I'm, I'm just going to go back to me as a, uh, a classroom uh, instructor, which is what I enjoy doing the most. So anyways, we're on part two, Sola Scriptura. Uh, some of this is going to be a recap or a summary of last month. Um, I have an awful lot of information. I have an outline that I'll go over. Um, so if you're taking notes, I'll do the outline first in case we don't reach the end of, of my uh, notes. But you'll at least have the outline um, because I don't think we're going to do a, a third part. Sola Scriptura, how do we define it? What is it? It's simply that the Bible is our, our authority for matters of faith and practice. The Bible is our ultimate authority for faith and practice, what we believe and how we are to live. Uh, the scriptures being authoritative because they alone are infallible. That's key. The scriptures alone are infallible. And being the only infallible source 
for doctrine, for teaching, for practice. We can say that the Bible is therefore our highest and ultimate authority. Uh, the, it, the Bible is truth sufficient to save. The Bible is uh, truth uh, sufficient to sanctify. It's our source. The Bible is our sufficient source for all of that. What, what isn't sola scriptura? Because sometimes people confuse that. So what would we say that it isn't? We can say that sola scriptura is not and does not mean that only the Bible contains truth. The Bible alone is sufficient and authoritative because it's infallible, yet it's not the only source of truth that God has revealed. God has revealed himself in nature. We call that general revelation. Um, we can read about that in uh, Romans chapter 1. Um, we can read about that in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. So the scriptures are authoritative and infallible as special revelation, but God has also revealed himself through creation, and we can find truth there. And in addition to that, there's also truth in things like church councils and things like creeds and things like... Uh, outside writings. We have preachers, we have teachers, we have counselors, we have those that write, we have those that speak. They're all capable of speaking the truth. The question is, does it line up with the truth that is contained in the only infallible source, which is the Bible? But we don't throw out everything else and say that it's invaluable because it's not in Scripture. It's just a matter of whether it lines up and reflects what is in Scripture. So why this topic? And Pastor Michael has already uh, sort of revealed that. It's that this year happens to be the 500th year of when we look back and say uh, the beginning of the Reformation, the, the, the split between uh, um, in Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, the Western Church, there was a split between the church and what we call Protestantism, the protest side. So that's why this topic. It's an, it's an anniversary year. And uh, from this point forward, there, it will be the 500-year anniversary of many, many events. And if you're here in, uh, if you're here in 2021, we'll have a 500-year anniversary of Martin Luther's Here I Stand speech, which was in 1521. So we'll have a 500-year anniversary, 633, on that, too. So anyways... We're not having a, a, a 633 Sola Scriptura because we're going to split as a church and uh, we're having some internal discussion over what's our highest authority. It has to do with something that goes back way further than that. But what I want to do at this point is sort of recap what the Reformation was about and then I'll go get to our points. Because if you weren't here, or for those that are going to listen to it later, I want to recap the Reformation. It comes down to this basically. There were three main points that Martin Luther raised in the nailing of his 95 theses on the church in Wittenberg's door. Those 95 theses were 95 points of disputation, things that he wanted to uh, have discussed. 
And we know that he meant to do this as, an, as a means of an academic endeavor because they were written in Latin, and Latin was not the spoken language of the everyday common folk. So this was an academic exercise. So he wrote these uh, disputations that he wanted to discuss. There were 95 of them, and they can be boiled down into basically three main objections. One was the selling of indulgences, Number two was papal authority. Papal meaning the Pope, the head of the Catholic Church. His authority and the extent of his authority, uh, primarily over purgatory. Okay, so we had indulgences, we had papal authority. And then the third uh, point of contention was that those individuals that were buying the indulgences were being misled into a false security. That their eternal destiny was... um, uh, they were being misled that it was secure because they bought indulgences. So those three things. What is an indulgence? An indulgence was a slip of paper given out to the common folk um, in, as an exchange of money. Okay, So an indulgence uh, was given. You would buy an indulgence, and an indulgence would absolve you or a loved one of past, present, or future sin. So you could pay for something that you were going to do that you knew was a sin in the future and get absolved of it beforehand by buying indulgences. Now, the way, they, the way this was marketed, and believe me, it was marketed. And um, in fact, a Johann Tetzel, who was a Dominican friar, was probably the best at it because uh, he would go around to the different uh, uh, townships and uh, he would guilt people into buying, saying, don't you know that you could uh, get your grandmother out of purgatory? Purgatory was the place, it was taught, where those who had died would remain to work off the rest of their sins. Now, the purgatory, indulgences weren't for hell. Okay, because we're assuming these people were baptized as infants. In the Catholic Church, if you're baptized as an infant, you don't go to hell. You're in purgatory. You need to have your sins worked off. So here's how that worked. The Catholic Church said, basically, that, well, that the apostles, church fathers, Mary, Jesus, had, were all such stellar individuals that they had an abundance of good works. So they had an abundance of good works that were now held in the treasury of merit. So an indulgence played off of what had been built up in the treasury. So when you bought an indulgence for a, a deceased loved one or yourself, you were buying the good works of somebody that lived before you because those good works it was like a bank account they were stored up okay well martin luther being the pastor that he was of his congregation and living in the the region of what is modern day germany at the time the region he lived in the gentleman uh uh, uh, frederick the third the elector they didn't allow indulgences to be sold. So all the people in his region would leave and cross 
uh, crossed, say, the county line into a region where they could buy indulgences. So when they came back and showed Martin Luther, you don't need to preach on sin. Our sins are absolved. Look, I have an indulgence. He really had no recourse because he himself was a Catholic. It was the Pope. These were given out under the Pope's authority. So what was he to do about it? That's why he wrote the 95 Theses. Okay, so that's a recap. That was what started the Reformation. And uh, that's, uh, I think that's enough at this point as a recap. So here's what I want to do. I want to make the case tonight that sola scriptura as a principle is number one, a safeguard of our faith, and number two, the source for our faith. Okay? Sola scriptura safeguards our faith, and it's also the source for our faith. Now, if you're taking notes, here's the outline. As a safeguard of our faith, sola scriptura protects us from individualism, traditionalism, and experientialism. Sola Scriptura safeguards our faith from individualism, traditionalism, and experientialism. As a source for our faith, Sola Scriptura provides the fundamentals. The fundamentals are contained in Scripture. That's number one. Number two, the fundamentals are clear in Scripture. And number three, the fundamentals are rooted in Christ. So the fundamentals are contained in Scripture, the fundamentals are clear in Scripture, and the fundamentals are rooted in Scripture. So, as a safeguard, as a safeguard, Sola Scriptura protects us from individualism, which is basically my interpretation of the Scriptures is as valid as your interpretation of the Scriptures. It's an individual approach. The interpretation up is up to the individual. See, one of the outcomes of the Reformation was the idea that every believer was entitled to or should have access to the Scriptures in their own tongue, their own vernacular. That's one of the beautiful things that came out of the Reformation. The Reformers were attempting to uh, point back. They were pointing backwards and reliance on the Word of God. They wanted to point back to the intended meaning of the specific authors of the Scriptures, which presupposed the idea of a fixed canon, the canon is what we call the, uh, well, the 27 books of the New Testament. Let's stick with that. The canon of the New Testament is the fact that the 27 books are the only books inspired by God, and there will be no others. It's a closed canon. So they were pointing back to that. So the Reformers assumed that the canon was fixed. That's what they were pointing back to. They wanted, they wanted to make sure that Scripture... Um, would be viewed as having an objective meaning, not subjective up to the individual. So the idea of sola scriptura, the fact that the Bible is inspired and infallible and is our sufficient 
and only source for faith and practice, that itself protects us and protects the church against individual interpretations. We assume that there is an objective meaning to a particular verse, to a particular chapter, to a particular book. Um, in Acts 17.11, Paul, well, in Acts 17, Paul and Silas had been in, in Thessalonia, and uh, uh, they were leaving there because uh, there were some uh, uh, rebel rousers. The Jews had got some rebel rousers going to sort of thwart their preaching, and so they had gone to Berea, uh, several miles away. And in uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 11, um, it says that the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They were more noble. Why? Because they received the word. They received the word that was being preached. They received it with eagerness. And they also examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Did you catch that? They examined the scriptures daily. They went back to an objective source, an unchanging source, to see if that which they were being taught or spoken to by Paul was actually true. Did it actually line up? They were making sure that he wasn't employing an individual reading of Scripture. So sola scriptura protects us from individualism. Sola scriptura also protects us from traditionalism. And this is the, uh, the normal um, uh, one of the three that I've presented that people see as sola scriptura is opposed to Tradition, church tradition. Traditionalism competes with the authority of Scripture by assuming that there is more than one ultimate authority. Think of that. Traditionalism says that tradition is equal to and as authoritative as the Scriptures. That means you would have two ultimate authorities. But what, how can that be? What happens? What happens when tradition butts up against the scriptures? Well, those that hold to the tradition don't relinquish, do they? So what, who wins out? Tradition wins out. So then tradition actually becomes the ultimate authority instead of scripture. So sola scriptura guards us against traditionalism. It guards us against church councils, the church magisterium, against papal authority, against creeds that don't line up with the truth of scripture. So when we allow tradition to rule authoritatively, it actually hinders our liberty. If, you're, if you were to go and read Romans chapter 14, um, Paul's talking about our liberty. We think about what, what are the things that bind our conscience? 
Well, the Holy Spirit ultimately binds our conscience. But when traditionalism supersedes the authority of scriptures, tradition now is seen as that which binds our conscience. And that is tyrannical. That is legalism. That is dogmatic legalism. Number three. Hey, I'm getting through this quicker than I thought. I'm glad. Hopefully I'm not talking too fast. I, I felt like I was going to be under the gun to get through all of this. Um, and I'm, I'm doing pretty good. So we'll, we'll have a chance for questions. Um, we're going to limit uh, Mr. DePaul in the back there to no questions. Uh, <laughs> don't take the mic back there when we ask questions. <laughs> he tried... He tried to fluster me last time. He came up with some bizarre question and sat back there with a smirk on his face with no name on the question. So traditionalism protects against an individual interpretation, a subjective interpretation of Scripture. Sola Scriptura protects against traditionalism, which ultimately is tyrannical, and Sola Scriptura protects us against experientialism. Experientialism is a real danger to the church. Experientialism is that which says that the scriptures are even unnecessary because I'm directed by the Holy Spirit and don't need the scriptures. It's my experience that determines what's right and wrong. It's my experience that becomes the ultimate authority. Uh, we have it right here on the wall. John 17, 17. Jesus in his high priestly prayer, praying to his Father, asked his Father to sanctify the believers in truth. Thy word is truth. We have to be careful of being led by our, by our emotions, by that which we experience, by that which we attribute. We can mistakenly attribute things to the Lord that aren't of the Lord. We need to continually go back and measure them against our objective sola scriptura um, infallible source, our ultimate authority. The other, uh, the other night... Uh, my wife and I were uh, having dinner, and there were some young men in their white shirts with their name tags, and uh, they were getting ready to leave. One of them had happened to come back in uh, right, right past the table. We uh, struck up a little conversation, and I, I simply asked him, that, um, is it possible that his experiences could be wrong? And he was... He was completely unwilling to say that that was even a possibility. Even when I asked him uh, about others that have similar experiences but yet aren't of your sect that would say the same exact thing. What happens when that other person's experience meets up with your experience? How do you determine? So at, at that point, all three of them came to the table and they kind of whisked him away but um, he needed a haircut no no those guys are pretty good it was high and tight 
Yeah. So I want to read a, a passage. You can turn to it with me if you'd like. Second Peter. Second Peter chapter one. Beginning in verse 16, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own personal interpretation. But what I really want to show you is what happens in verse 19. Peter is saying, look, myself, John, James, we went up on the mount where Christ was transfigured, and the Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. They hear it with their own ears. How sure can you be of that when you hear something and you experience it firsthand? And he says, but we have something even more sure than what we heard. And what was that? The prophetic word, that which has already been established, that which has already been written, is more sure than even what we have heard or in our case, have seen, or experienced, or felt, even more sure. Sola Scriptura protects against individualism, it protects against traditionalism, and it protects against our experiences, experientialism. <clears throat> Moving on from Sola Scriptura as a safeguard of our faith, Sola Scriptura is the source for our faith. The fundamentals, all the fundamentals, all the necessary essentials are contained in scriptures. So everything that's necessary for salvation, that we'll call that a fundamental article of faith. A fundamental article of faith, or simply a fundamental, is contained in scriptures. Whatever it is that is necessary to affirm to be considered within the body of Christ can be found in the scriptures. All the necessary teachings. There is nothing that's necessary for salvation that isn't taught in the scriptures. I'll repeat that. I'll repeat it, babe. There is nothing. <laughs> there is nothing that's necessary for salvation that isn't taught in the scriptures. 
There's no tradition, no decree, no council, no creed, no papal proclamation that teaches anything necessary for salvation that isn't already found in the Bible. Sola Scriptura is a source for our faith. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, chapter 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. All Scripture is God-breathed or inspired, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. The scriptures must contain every essential. The scriptures have to contain the fundamental doctrines. Otherwise, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17 would be false, that the man of God is equipped for every good work. If there was anything else essential or fundamental to our faith that wasn't contained in scriptures, then this verse wouldn't be accurate. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. If God's word was lacking, we couldn't say that it was perfect. So Sola Scriptura is a, as a source for our faith because the fundamentals are contained in scriptures and also because the fundamentals are clear in the scriptures. Point two, the fundamentals are clear in, in the scriptures. The essentials are clearly taught. The reformers believed and taught that the Bible was plain. It was plain enough for any reader or hearer to fully grasp the teachings that are necessary for salvation. A, per, a person could understand its message through ordinary means. God's word is not esoteric. It doesn't contain hidden messages. It's not cryptic. It's not secret. It's not occultic in any way. There are no hidden messages that only a select few are privy to. If it's necessary for salvation, it can be known because it's clear. If it's necessary for salvation... It can be known because it is clear. The reformers and the doctrine itself is called the perspicuity of Scripture. It simply means the clarity of Scripture. Psalm 19, verse 7, says, uh, the second part of it says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, the unlearned. Those who are unlearned. It makes them wise. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses, right, is giving a great teaching. The great Shema, chapter 6. And in beginning in verse 6, verse, uh, chapter 6, 6 and 7, he says, These words that I have commanded you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. If God's word was not able to be understood, how could you teach it to your children? He says, teach them as you walk by the way. Wherever you go, teach them. 
in the morning, at night, when you lie down, when you rise up. Put them on the, the, the front of your forehead, on your doorposts. So even our children can be taught. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, that, first, that passage we just looked at, in verses 14 and 15, the two previous verses, Paul says to Timothy, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how, listen to this, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. From childhood he was acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So even as a child, they were enough to make him wise for salvation. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says that the, the, the word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We can be guided by it. It's not hidden or esoteric. So, Sola Scriptura as a source for our faith because the fundamentals are contained in the Scriptures, because the fundamentals are clear in the Scriptures, and lastly and most importantly, Sola Scriptura is a source for our faith because the fundamentals are rooted in Christ. The fundamentals are rooted in Christ. If one's eternal life depends on it, then it's an essential. If it's an essential, then it's clearly taught in the scriptures. So if it's taught scripturally as essential, then it points to Christ. If it's taught clearly as an essential, it points to Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, that no one can lay a foundation other than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's no other foundation. Christ establishes and embodies every essential doctrine. If you want to, you can turn with me to uh, John chapter 5. John chapter 5, looking at verse... I'll begin in verse 37. Jesus speaking to the Jews, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Did I miss that? That was six. I'm sorry. That was chapter six. I said John chapter five, though, right? John chapter five. Sorry, 38. What you put in the well will come up in the bucket. What I, what I put in the well at that point was a sticky note on the wrong page. So... John chapter 5, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Jesus is speaking of his Father. You do not have his word, who? The Father's word, in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. 
You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Speaking of the Jews here. And it is they that bear witness about me. The scriptures bear witness about Christ. Sola Scriptura is a source for our faith because the fundamentals are rooted in Christ. And he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So they search the scriptures, but they refuse to see it because they reveal and they testify to Christ. God upholds the authority uh, of his own word. If we read in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus said. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The fundamentals are rooted in Christ. John 1.1 says that Jesus is the incarnate word, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, that Jesus is the end of the law. He's the end of the law. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He also equates the teaching of Christ with all of Scripture. I love this, this verse from this simple little book, 2 John, which is all of about, I think, 13 or 15 verses. Second John. Here John equates the teaching of Christ with all of Scripture. It says, everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. All of the Scriptures are the teaching of Christ. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home. 2 John, verses 9 and 10. So sola scriptura is our sufficient authority. It's a safeguard for our faith, guarding against individualism, traditionalism, and experientialism. It's a source of our saving faith, It contains all the fundamentals, all the necessary essentials for salvation. It clearly teaches these essentials, the fundamentals. And they all reveal Christ as the source, the embodiment and fulfillment. The fundamentals are rooted in our Savior. The story, uh, one of my favorite stories in Scripture is the story uh, found in Luke chapter 24. It's after the crucifixion, Christ has risen. The folks in Jerusalem are distraught. There's two disciples on their way to Emmaus. They're walking about a seven-mile distance. And Jesus comes alongside them. They don't recognize him. And um, he basically says, what are you doing? Why are you sad? And they say, are you the only one in Jerusalem that hasn't heard what's happened? And the two men go on to explain why they're sad that the, the man that they were a disciple of was turned over to the authorities and given up and crucified. 
And uh, Jesus then um, begins to teach them all the way on this seven-mile journey. And he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. That's in verse 27 of chapter 24 in Luke. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them, these two men, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In one final passage, turn with me to Mark, please. And if you're not convinced that Sola Scriptura is a, is a worthy doctrine to hold, if you still think that church tradition is on equal par, turn with me to Mark, please. Chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is, that they were unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. I think I hold to the tradition of the elders too. In fact, my kids give me a hard time. Because when they come in the house and go to the fridge, did you wash your hands? Did you wash your hands? <laughs> Thank you, Michael. For they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. In other words, Isaiah was spot on in his prophecy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The Pharisees and the scribes had elevated the teachings of men above the doctrines of God. Jesus says, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. If you look down at verse 13, he says, You make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Let us not make void the word of God by our own traditions, by our own individualism, or by our own experiences. Let's pray. Father God, we take your word for granted. We, we have Bibles laying around our house. We have different versions. Lord, may, we, may you inspire in us and instill in us a renewed uh, sense of appreciation, a renewed sense of reverence, uh, a renewed hunger, a desire to, 
Read your word, study your word, handle your word rightly, to be accountable, to um, employ your word in our lives. Uh, may your word uh, light our path, guide our way. Lord, that we would just uh, fall in love with your infallible, inspired, uh, revealed will contained in the scriptures. We are so privileged, Lord, here in the 21st century with all the technology, uh, the availability, the ease with which we can just go right to your word. And yet sometimes we want to uh, look down our noses on those in the past that had no access to your word. Um, so, Lord, that we would uh, not, that, not take that for granted. And Lord, I thank you for this church that places such a high value on preaching your word. And I thank you for this church that places a high value on, on uh, having compassion and care for those in the world, for the persecuted church beyond our shores and the ever-increasing persecuted church within our shores. Um, Lord, may we live lives pleasing to you. May our thoughts please you. May the words we speak be pleasing to you. Um, we thank you again, Lord, for 633 and this opportunity to, well, uh, tackle some topics that maybe we wouldn't, wouldn't normally on a Sunday morning. So we thank you for what you accomplished through fallible men in the Reformation, uh, for making that split and for a, a, uh, a real reverence for sola scriptura. Lord, bless our week. May we go about and uh, represent living truth, represent you and our Lord in a worthy fashion. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.